From the <clears throat> first evening practicing together Friday up until now, I think it's very clear that both Michael and myself have been <clears throat> emphasizing the importance of inquiry, learning, staying open. and that being a lifelong endeavor. I'd like to go into what I believe is the main source of that mandate in the Buddha's teaching uh, that extols freedom of inquiry, questioning, doubting. Uh, But it's an often misunderstood sutta. It's the Kalama Sutta. It's a famous one and often quoted, but I think it's quoted by people who just use it for their particular, what they're trying to promote, uh, likening it to science or free inquiry or free thinking and so forth, or some kind of hippie doctrine. Maybe I'll start there. Uh, both Michael and I studied with Ajahn Mahabua in Thailand. And this is a forest monastery. And some, anyone here from California? Sorry. <laughs> Maybe you'll recognize. This, uh, this gentleman was kind of a surfer, California morning, da-da-da-da-da. Uh, at any rate, he was making the rounds of all the different monasteries and other establishments. <laughs> uh, and so uh, the, the custom at this uh, Wat, or monastery of Ajahn Mahabur's, was to, after lunch, uh, you would have a period where uh, we could do the discussion, discussion of the Dharma. And uh, Mahabu was going on how to, making decisions. How do you make decisions? Decide what to do. And so this fellow, this, I, it's not that I'm guessing. I got to know him a little bit. He was a, a surfer and had that kind of, he was having a good time. I hope he still is, wherever he is. This is a long time ago. And uh, so how do you make your decisions? And he said to Ajahn Mahabu, uh, I just, and it has to, this is the way it was said, I just follow my heart, not my, it has to be my heart. So he said, I just, fo- I just follow my heart. And Mahabu, it was translated, Mahabu spoke no English. And I translated it, Mahabu was, what? So he, he tried it again. He came at it from many different directions. And Ma, finally, Mahabu started doubled over and laughing. He got hysterical laughing. Tears were coming to his eyes. And he said, you follow that place, that cesspool full of urine and feces? And in other words, your heart is uh, the reason we meditate is because uh, you're not seeing things clearly. It isn't a reliable instrument. It's gotten, gotten us all into this mess on the planet and individually. Um, and yet there is room for that, of course. Individual... Finally, the Buddha encourages us, be a lamp unto yourself. And so in this sutta, uh, 
I'll paraphrase some and then I'll read a few quotes from it and uh, try to put some balance in, uh, try to balance what I uh, think the Buddha had in mind and why uh, there's such a, an emphasis in, in this uh, approach to living. Uh, the, <clears throat> the column has lived in a town which in many ways is, uh, I think, similar to Cambridge, Massachusetts, maybe Berkeley, California, only not as large. In other words, it was full of intellectual ferment, all kinds of interesting things going on. People uh, had enough education, good food, there was enough money. Every, it was a f- thriving, flourishing. And uh, the Buddha comes through, and the, the Kalamas are beside themselves. They're very upset. They are educated, intelligent people, and they are suffering. And they say, may as well put it. The columns of Kasaputta said to the Blessed One, that's the Buddha, Lord, uh, there are some priests and contemplatives who come to Kasaputta They expound and glorify their own doctrines. But as for the doctrines of others, they deprecate them, revile them, show contempt for them, and disparage them. And then other priests and contemplatives come to Kasaputta. They expound and glorify their own doctrines. But as for the doctrines of others, they deprecate them, revile them, show them contempt for them, and disparage them. They leave us absolutely uncertain and in doubt which of these venerable priests and contemplatives are speaking the truth and which ones are lying. In other words, they're confused and uh, so the, and essentially, I'm going to paraphrase now, they're saying, and I suppose here you are, they're not Buddhists, and here you are, another one. Now, all right, what's your rap? And what are you going to try and tell us is the only way, only a way to, to practice? And the Buddha doesn't do that. And he said, of course you're in doubt. There are many things in life that are quite doubtful. And then he gives them, um, and he, he gives them a suggestion, which is uh, what is quoted often, and I think, to some degree, distorted a bit. Of course, you are uncertain, columnist. Of course, you are in, you are in doubt. When there are reasons for doubt, uncertainty is born. So in this case, columnist, don't go. This he's giving them. He gives them ten don'ts. Don't go by reports by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement through pondering views, by probability, or by the thought, this contemplative is our teacher. When you know for yourselves that these qualities are unskillful, these qualities are blameworthy, these qualities are criticized by the wise, these qualifies when adopted and carried out lead to harm and to suffering, then you should abandon them. And then he flips it around and says, when you know for, your, uh, for yourself that they're beneficial, and then, of course, follow them. Now, I think the surfer must, maybe he read that part. So he thinks, you know, you just go into your heart and uh, you, you do that. But as the sutta unfolds, what the, the Buddha, uh, and also if, if you read, put this in, remember, these people are not Buddhists. And so he's, uh, but if you read a fair, the, the Pali Canon, which are the uh, discourses of the Buddha, and there are lots of them, to all kinds of people, and he spoke in different ways to different people based on their capacity, their interests, and so forth. And 
it's very, very obvious that he didn't mean this in quite the way in which it's often interpreted, which all 10 can be reduced to two. Uh, one would be giving absolute blind obedience uh, to tradition, to scriptures, to teachers, uh, uh, to the fact that something's ancient, uh, all of that, your own teacher, uh, and giving blind obedience to that to authorities, authorities of one sort or another. And the second part is blind obedience to logic and reason. So what has been misinterpreted as the Buddha is against all authority and against all reason and logic. And so then it's a, a mandate for uh, being a free thinker and just follow your heart. Uh, now, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. That's up to you. You can just start from scratch and just take a look at life. But that isn't what... First of all, you're here. And so you're being subjected to a particular approach. But it's not, I don't think. We intend it to be a dogmatic presentation. This is the onlyest way, and either it's this way or the highway. Uh, because what the Buddha is saying is don't give absolute uh, slavish devotion uh, to uh, what I just mentioned, to all these different um, authorities, the authority of, ancient, of scriptures, of teachers, and so forth. Uh, first of all, if it were absolutely true that don't, then Michael and I would definitely be out of a job. We'd have to get an honest job, a nine-to-five job, because there's no room for us. And yet, throughout the discourses, the Buddha sees the role of teachers as important, as playing a role. Um, also, uh, he's, there's a key phrase in it that's often overlooked. Take the counsel of the wise. In other words, let's see if I can give you the quote again. When you know for yourselves and counsel of the wise. So, in a, so what he is saying is, listen to the teachings and listen to yourself, both. Now, counsel of the wise, in this context, of course, means this tradition. It means the teachings of the Buddha. And there are many spin-offs over the centuries, other brilliant der derivatives of it, and... Uh, accommodations, developments, as the teachings move throughout Asia. And now it's here. Um, what the Buddha is saying is that, um, don't. for example, he did have respect for reason and logic. It's just to not give absolute cre uh, credibility to reason and logic. Because in, a, in quite a few of the exchanges, he uses reason and logic, to be, but it, isn't, it has its limit is what it amounts to. Uh, for example, uh, if we tell you to inquire, ask you to inquire, which we've been encouraging you, pay attention, learn. Um, those of you who are very, very new, uh, you can do it too. Start. We have to start where we are. And let's say, be a lamp unto yourself. The Buddha's, when the Buddha was dying, said that. Well, maybe to begin with, we have this little candle. You know, it's not a, a, light, a bright light. But you have to start somewhere. So you start. Um, but what the Buddha is saying is, uh, in the, at the beginning, you can't possibly have that clarity of insight, of seeing, that 
goes to the depth of what's being said so that faith or conviction, sadha, for example, if you read those ten don'ts, it sounds like a faith is out. Uh, no authorities, no faith. Uh, that's all done with. In the Buddha's teaching, faith, uh, sadha, I think a, a, perhaps a better translation might be conviction. Uh, you can leave it as faith, but it's provisional. In other words, what the Buddha is against is blind faith. And it's provisional in that it isn't forever. It's not an end in itself, as it is in many religions. It isn't in this one. If this is a religion, I mean, it's a little bit of everything. Uh, because what, it's provisional in the sense that at the beginning, your ability to verify what these teachings is going to be limited because you're, you're just developing a, uh, the, 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 your instrument of inquiry. And that's what we've been working on a lot, like the, the, every moment of mindfulness. And certainly when we work with the breath, or there are other things you could use, metta and so forth, we're developing the instrument of inquiry, which is capable of varying depths. And to begin with, it doesn't have the depth that can test some of these teachings. So that uh, a certain amount provisional conviction is necessary just to set, set some energy in motion. How are you going to find out if this is true uh, if you don't give it a try? So it's asking you to start practicing even though you haven't verified it for yourself. And it's, it's asking you, so what is it based on? It's based on a reasonable, logical presentation so that it makes sense to your intellect, that it sounds like, okay, this is not off the wall. You know? And I hope what Michael and I have been saying, at least some of it makes a bit of sense. So that, because we're using logic and reason and trying to use language with as much precision as we're able to, to try to convey to you something, uh, enabling you to have this provisional, arouse the energy to do what you've been doing for the last few days even though you haven't seen the conviction, you haven't seen the demonstration, or as the experiment hasn't been verified in the laboratory, at least not much. Although there are little ways in which it can be right away. And in Cambridge, I often do this in our, in our practice groups there. For example, most people who come, most people have read or heard, uh, and they've heard, certainly heard us talk about, if you just follow the breathing, in, out, in, out, in, out, the mind will become very calm, very steady. It will bring up a certain rapture and then finally a certain peace. It's lawful. It's happened to countless people for thousands of years. Okay. Now, uh, you can test that one right away. Because if, but you have to give it... But right away doesn't mean the first in-breath, first out-breath. <laughs> I mean, you can begin... Uh, because those of you who are very, very new, uh, perhaps you've had... A f- a few moments here where you've seen, oh, this isn't a waste of time. You know, that actually, uh, the, as, the, as I'm more and more able to be with breaths, breaths in a continuous way, they do seem to uh, bring something with them. There's some kind of collateral benefit that, that comes out of just being attending to the breath. The thoughts recede a bit. There's a little bit more space in the mind, a little bit more quiet. And, it, and it's a good feeling. It's nice. And then we lose it. Okay, but so that's that skill. We're fashioning an instrument of, instrument of inquiry that, as it gets stronger, because vipassana is about understanding. Wisdom is understanding. To begin with, it's conceptual. 
the, the Buddhist, te the educational model is first, of course, it's presented in words and teachings. Then the question becomes, do you understand, does one understand the words? Do you understand the verbal teachings? Do the concepts make sense? If so, get go start practicing it. It's not enough to just be satisfied with brilliant words or articulate presentations. They're designed to get you to do these practices which are designed to test it. So people uh, within a, you know, not that long a time, they can say, yeah, great. Uh, the breath does, uh, it's, a, it's a nice tool. Even if I learn nothing but, but this, it's very useful to have in life. Even during the day, sometimes I'm, I have to wait online. I'm waiting for uh, in a, a dentist or a doctor's office. I'm getting impatient. I just turn to a few breaths and I feel a lot better and I feel I've used the time well. So you're verifying it. So then your confidence, mm, maybe some of the other teachings have, make some sense too. So that starts to a little bit more energy because there's something very self-fulfilling about learning. Even if, even if you might think this is small stuff, small potatoes. But uh, now I understand that learning has gotten usurped. It's been taken over by, uh, we do it in order to make a good living, in order to get, become famous, in order to become successful, and so forth. But learning in its purest sense is joyful for human beings. A wisdom path is learning how to live, is learning how to live. Now here's where take the counsel of the wise. In this case, of course, it would be the Buddha. And, uh, well, it would be the Buddha. On your, I've asked this question of myself many times, and you, I, I invite you to do it too. On my own, and I'm fairly well educated, and I, I still study and enjoy reading and so forth, and I'm around lots of educated people who teach me things, and I watch you know, public television and see the education. <laughs> um, I wouldn't have come up with the breath, with breath awareness as something a really useful skill. I think if we, let's say, decided here are the 10 most brilliant people in the country, send them off to a think tank in Palo Alto or wherever, and give them all the money they need and give them as much time as they need, they wouldn't come up with breath awareness. <laughs> they wouldn't. So the council, oh, so in other words, someone gave us something that turns out to be useful. So you're building, it's not to reject tradition, it's not to have a, it's, not, it's the dogmatic imposition of tradition and, and certain religions and certain doctrines and the ways of teaching that become so dangerous. What the Buddha was against was this um, blind obedience to anything. And uh, he was not against learning from, uh, why would you want to reject our, your heritage. Why would you have to, you have to, what, do we have to invent fire for the first time every day, all the time? Having a fresh mind doesn't mean having a lobotomy. <laughs> you know, it, it's, you know, you don't forget that red means uh, stop and green means go. It still does when you get out, when you leave, okay, I think. Uh, so it, having a clear mind and functioning in the conventional world that, that humans have devised is what life is about. So you're beginning to see what the Buddha is saying is bring the two together. Your own understanding is vital. Finally, you have to decide. But don't discard the wisdom that, has come, that comes from many sources. 
from ancient teachings, from, uh, from teachers. From, so Michael and I have a job still, fortunately, uh, etc. And uh, it's, it's this interplay between both of them, being open to learn and being open from yourself. Okay, but how do you test it? Well, you test it through living. And here's where it gets really interesting. Because the Buddha, here, what he's saying is, uh, I'm going to put it in different terms, um, take a particular teaching. Let's say we, we are doing that here. You're being given a particular teaching. Where does it take you? Now remember, if you are functioning within the confines of the Buddha's Dharma, wisdom in terms of the Buddha's Dharma has a specific meaning. There's lots of different kinds of wisdom. All can be useful. Uh, starting simply with, when it's raining, put on your coat, raincoat. You know, our mommies taught us that, and we still don't do it, and we get sick. But all right. Uh, so the, the, the wisdom that, that is being taught, see how to put this. Hmm. I think of it's the early stages of senility is starting. Where did I leave off? Wisdom. Yeah. Um, what it is in this framework. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just putting your raincoat on. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> Michael's is helping me out because I helped him out the other night. Okay. We're even now. Uh, what was that again? <laughs> okay. Um, when the first teaching the Buddha gave is when he held up a handful of leaves in the forest. And he asked the meditators around him, he said, well, are there more leaves in the entire forest or in my hand? And, the, and they said, of course, there's more in the forest than in your hand. He says, what I know is equivalent to the whole forest, but what I'm going to teach you is just, just in this hand. So because all I'm teaching is suffering and the end of suffering. There are lots of things that are worthwhile and can learn, but this is what I'm teaching, suffering and the end of suffering. And so skill in the Buddha's, in other words, the art of living is a skill. It can be learned. If it couldn't be learned, it would be hopeless for us. In other words, how are we going to wise up? Does it drop from a cloud? Or is this is a skill, an art, the art of living, that's what wisdom is often defined as. But it usually ends up just being wise words that people memorize and quote. Socrates said this, and, and so Buddha and Jesus and so forth. They're great words, but they're, they're sterile unless they're put into action. They're dead. And you can get a rush from hearing yourself quote it, especially at a party or some gullible person who never heard it before. But this is meant to be translated into something that breathes, that's alive. Okay, so skill uh, is taking a teaching and testing it. And how do you test it? You test it to see, does it lead to, the, to, to ending suffering? Or does it bring more suffering? Uh, the suffering uh, to you and to others. And, it's, and I'm bringing in more than this sutta because... It's so obvious that this is central to the Buddhist teaching. Um, he, uh, suffering and the end of suffering uh, is, is, uh, is brought in 
first of all, myself, I wouldn't be doing this practice if it didn't allow me this openness. If it didn't allow me this, this freedom to inquire and to doubt and to question. I've, I've questioned my teachers. And uh, Joseph Goldstein, who many of you know, we've compared notes a long time ago. We were both terrible in certain ways. We asked endless questions. People would hate us. And we had different teachers, but they both said the same thing. No, let him, let him. He'll exhaust himself finally. <laughs> you know. uh, and f- finally, you stop asking these questions because you're being given enough to start doing something that really helps you with your life. And so skill uh, would be teachings that when they're enacted, when they're put into action, they actually are beneficial for you and for others. Uh, and the lack of skill is when uh, you get when you take a certain teaching, and it turns out that it it isn't skillful. It produces harm. Uh, it's harmful for you and for others. So that's the the, the standard that the Buddha gave the columnists. He's saying test it, test it. Now it sounds like he's throwing everything out, but he's what he's throwing out is dogmatic, rigid adherence to anything, really, as suffering. And it's based on a a very beautiful teaching that the Buddha gave to his son, Rahula, where he's teaching, he said, Rahula, before you, uh, it's it's about this skill. Uh, And it has to do with skillful mind states, skillful speech, and skillful actions. And so what we're doing a lot of, whether you know it or not, and now in the second mode of instruction even more so, we're um, washing the mind clean of all kinds of toxins because we're not reinforcing them. We're not watering them. Because when, you are, when you're aware of something, rather than either grasp or push it away, you're taking the strength out of it. And we're cultivating... We're trying to improve the quality of the human mind, each one of us our own mind. So, for example, if you have certain kinds of thoughts, at least some of them get translated into words and or actions and then produce negative results. So he, he's counseling his son, I think he was 17 at the time, or he was young, very young. And he said, uh, if, the, if the content of your consciousness is not skillful, Change it. Learn, learn your way out of it. He says, if, and regarding the same for speech and the same for action. And he said, so before you act in all these ways, uh, test it and say, is this skillful or is this unskillful? Will this be harmful or beneficial? If you feel you make your best judgment, if it's harmful, don't do it. If it's beneficial, proceed. Then, then he said, then you act. And when you act, you m- might have thought it was beneficial, but you start to see the effects. This is cause and effect. This is what, one of the meanings of karma in the Buddha's teaching. It's not so mysterious. It, that's why lots of scientists are at home with the Buddha's teaching, because cause and effect has a lot of similarity with, with a scientific approach. You do this, you get that. You don't do this, you don't get that. And you study that. And so... Uh, let's say you thought something would be beneficial, you did your best, but then when you actually do it, and that means you have to be patient and observe and watch how you, because this also obviously has implications for when we go home and here, and also even on the cushion, but we'll get to that uh, perhaps this evening. Um, 
so that if it turns out that even though you thought it was beneficial, but it isn't, then you drop it. If it's, if it's harmful, drop it. I had one teacher, uh, Vimla Thakkar, she wasn't a Buddhist, but this is not just a property of Buddhism. Uh, she was from India, and when we talked about something like this, she was very open to this. She gave talks at our center, even though she, she was non-sectarian. And she said, look, if you do something like that, sometimes just apologize to the person. Don't be too big so that you can't apologize. I've apologized to students. I, don't, I feel it's for my benefit. When I, sometimes I'll review a t what I've said in class or in a group, or I hope I haven't hurt anyone here. And I realize, Ugh, how did, where did that come from? It's just off. It's not accurate, or it's this or that. And I've, you know, I haven't had to apologize that often, but <laughs> for obvious reasons, more sitting is called for. That was a solution one of the teachers who came here from Burma. No matter what you would tell him, mm, he would look like he was mulling it over. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm. More sitting is called for. <laughs> I wish we could get away with that. You want much more than that. We can't, not in this culture. Um, so the, the test is, uh, let's say, you do your best to estimate what this will be. Then you do it, and you watch, you pay attention. Uh, and then you watch the impact of what, what it actually does so that it's not a matter of just listening to your my own heart or even listening to the Buddha's teaching. That's the beginning. But it's really watching it in life, seeing how this actually works. Does it work with this person at this time? And then even after it's over, let's say you decide this is skillful, and you do it, and it turns out it seems great for myself and for the people that it may be, it may be affecting. But then... A little bit later, you reflect back on it, you realize, I thought it was beneficial, it looked like it, but not really. Wow. And then maybe some remorse sets in. There's room for remorse in the Buddhist teaching, but it's in the service of learning. It's all about learning, inquiry and learning. And so if you've done something that has hurt someone or has been very unskillful, if you feel badly about it, that's okay if it's in the service of reflecting on it and trying to learn to not repeat it so that you unlearn what needs to be unlearned. Uh, but if you start compulsively, if it, it's, not to, to, it's not a guilt trip. It's not, if you start repeating it over and over, then it's just neuroticism and it's not useful at all. But it can be useful if you use it in the service of learning. So this is the core of a lot of it. Is it skillful or isn't it? Now, uh, the Buddha uh, encourages people to do this at varying levels all the time, really. And uh, when you do it, uh, it sounds pretty easy. Great. If it's beneficial, I'll do it. If it's, if it's not beneficial, I won't do it. Now, uh, also to back up a little bit, when you're new, you're relying on faith, much more on conviction. You're relying, you're getting a little bit of confirmation, but perhaps not deep enough, not bone deep understanding, if you know what I, I got that from a cowboy movie. <laughs> it's a Robert Duval, one of his openness or, you know, greenness or something. But it's, uh, he's asked about suffering. He says, do I know about suffering? Oh yeah, bone deep. 
And I remember, whoa. Because we can know about suffering, but our understanding, conceptual understanding, is on the surface. It doesn't have much transformative power. And so, it, okay, we learn, it seems like we learn a little bit, but then we just do it again and again. So as the learning goes deeper and deeper, and that requires the practice to go deeper and deeper, as the mind gets quieter and clearer and can begin to see uh, what it begins to see, uh, is understood at a deeper level, which is, has much more transformative power. That's the whole point. That's how insight, how wisdom liberates us. It comes from seeing. Now, investigation, to begin with, has thought in it. And as I mentioned, to begin with, we do have to have some conviction in our teachers, in books, uh, tapes, videos. You know, all these things, they have a role to play. And we especially if they're used to keep you practicing so that more and more you learn from yourself. At a certain point, faith is outmoded and it makes way for wisdom. It's not needed anymore. In other words, the mind is, is rolling and it understands that the most... That what Michael, uh, I've forgotten what, when Michael said it, it's not just, I think it was maybe the first talk. Um, it's, it's, it's not just mindfulness. There's much more to it than mindfulness or awareness. And that much more is the understanding that the mindfulness leads into it. But if there isn't the requisite understanding, then the transformation is going to be feeble or not much at all. Because typically, very often, typically what happens is we do learn and we know exactly, we have a certain level of wisdom. Uh, and we understand, but we, we betray our understanding. We know exactly what to do and what not to do, and we and we don't live our, our wisdom, we kill it. Now, uh, what this is pointing to with more and more depth, we don't betray our understanding. We don't betray what we've learned. We live it more and more. Uh, but supposing you find, as if you're honest, I hope you do find, I, I mean, I don't, I don't hope that you betray your understanding, but I hope if you find that you do, that the practice comes in there as well. Then inquiry comes into it. Inquiry in this case is, hmm, I knew exactly what to do or exactly what not to do, but I didn't honor my understanding. Why is that? Very often, so there's a bit of thinking in this kind of an investigation. There's a bit of thinking in this kind of investigation. And you might see, ah, oh, now I see. It's like pulling over to the side of the road, even on a retreat sometimes. Uh, I see. If I told this person what I really, it, it, there's fear. Very often it's fear. If I live my wisdom, I'm afraid I'll be alone, I'll be lonely, I'll lose my job, uh, something will happen. So I, ha I better just sweep it aside and just keep living in a way that's unfulfilling and not working, but at least I don't have to feel terrified. But then it comes up again and again and leads to behavior that's unfulfilling. Well, if you keep doing this, when you just sit and the instructions are, to just open up and be aware with no agenda. It's an invitation for what's down there in the boiler room to come up. All those critters who are living down there. Yippee! There's no agenda. He's an, it's an open party. We're all, we can all come. Hey, come on, let's come on. Now he thinks he's, he's very compassionate. Just show him what he thinks of the human race. And it comes up. You know, like, he's a, he's a very strong male figure. He has macho, no fear at all. Hey, this guy thinks he's a real hero. And up comes terror and fear. 
so this is what you asked for. You came here. <laughs> and Michael and I have no power over you whatsoever. Zero. It's your life. You brought yourself here. You paid for this. You drove yourself here. You came here. It's up to you. There are no grades. There's no certificate. There's no letters of recommendation. It's completely worthless <laughs> in those terms. Now, if you still want to do it, great. Great. Now, I'm just going to uh, end. You can see now, in order, because our, it, you can't wait until you're perfect. So it, the investigation, you do the best you can with the degree of clarity that you have. And little by little, and that means you often make mistakes. If you can't accept that you make a mistake and live with it and then learn from it, uh, this, this approach to living is not going to be very helpful. In other words, if you're so egocentric that you're not allowing yourself to admit you made a mistake, then there's, it's a dead end. Because inquiry takes you to the truth. And if the truth teaches you something about yourself, you might have a cherished self-image of yourself as I'm a... Uh, for example, I had a cherished image of myself when I went into the army at age 20. I had a picture of uh, Gandhi on my wall. And then when we had basic training, I loved the machine gun. And I loved everything about it, the physical part. Knapsack, running, you know, brought back childhood, John Wayne, I was, you know, it was just, it was terrific. And then it was repulsive because I, I just felt like, wow, I really enjoy this machine gun. I just like, da 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 da. It was a great feeling. I thought I was Gandhi. It turns out I'm Adolf Hitler. Uh, so, you, you, if, you're, if you go on this quest, but you see, to me, it's not bad news or good news, it's news, it's true news. And it's a joy to learn this way, but you, to begin with, you may not be used to it. It's strong medicine. Now, I want to end up this, this evening, we'll go into this in more depth, I guess Wednesday morning, bringing this home. There's another kind of investigation. And this, to me, is what the highest investigation. And the practice is going there. Um, I'm going to, for example, uh, I'm going to get ahead of certain of you, those who are beginners. Maybe you've had a glimpse of this. Some of you have been around for a while. Perhaps you do know what I'm talking about. I have a hunch you do. Let's say in the choiceless awareness part of the instructions, you're sitting and watching everything arise and pass away, come and go. Different moods, different thoughts, different I like, I don't like. If you, if you don't give up, little by little, you get better at that. You widen your capacity to receive your own experience intimately and without judging it. It's a skill. Now, I'm not saying it's easy to learn, but it can be learned. Many, many human beings, since way before the Buddha and Vedic times and ancient India and in every culture, people have learned it. But you really have to want to. You really have to want to. Okay, so... Um, in that practice, as everything arises and passes away, and what we're learning, uh, if, if you recall, Michael mentioned, the, I don't know if he used the word revolutionary, but radical, something of that sort. Um, we live the same life that everyone else does, but what we're learning is a new way to relate to the same experience that every human being goes through. And this new way of relating is, rather than condemning what we don't like or grasping onto what we do like, 
we're learning how to be aware of the way it is. Learning how to be aware of the way it is. Now, then some of you in might think, well, isn't that passive, and where does that, how do you act? No, we'll get to that. Uh, so as you do that, let's say something comes up. Let's say a small fear that's manageable. It comes up, and you're aware of that energy, not the word fear. And you learn how to do it. Wow. And you start to see that no matter what it is that you've been afraid of looking at or had uh, resistance to looking at, it's workable. And the reason it's workable is that it's observable. If it weren't observable, therefore workable, it would be hopeless. How are we going to change? Not through just trying to be like some ideal, but actually through, through self-knowing self and understanding. Okay, so what tends to happen is, as more and more uh, we widen our capacity to receive our own experience intimately without judging it, meaning it's not detachment, it's opening up to and receiving. You've heard that, receive, receive. Okay, what happens is those forms start losing their potency and falling away. And what you might see is the mind starts emptying itself of its own content. It does it naturally. It's not that you throw anything out. It's not that you're at war with what are called the three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion. Uh, If a poison, um, uh, let's say uh, uh, a version of some sort comes up, we investigate it, we look at it carefully, we get to know it. What is that? What does it mean to be greedy? Not be, or if attachment comes up, uh, what is it, why do we suffer when we're attached? Don't just take it on theory. Watch what happens as you're attached and see, do you in fact suffer as things change and you're still holding on to them? And so, it's that, now as you get better at that, and that's a central skill, the, all these forms, which you can liken to clouds, they start losing their potency and falling, and then what is left is a clear blue sky. Now here, I'm getting way ahead perhaps, but don't hanker after it, because if you do, you know, what's that monopoly, go directly to jail, do not pass go. You can't get there from there. What do they say in Maine? You can't get there from here? Uh, Because the trying to get there is a barrier. But what we're doing is just being with what is, just the way it is. And as that all falls away, what has always been there is a spaciousness, and the content of that space is silence. Now, it's called shunyata or shunya, emptiness. Uh, It's another form of intelligence. It isn't just, that's why uh, the silent mind, in one Tibetan tradition, they call enlightenment the the great silence. It isn't just like a vacuum or nothing's going on. Uh, The Tibetans put it the cognizing power of emptiness. That means it's mysterious to me. I've tasted it a little or I couldn't shoot my mouth off like I could, but it would be idiotic. No, people do it. Okay, maybe I don't. You'll have to decide whether I'm, you know, selling you some rotten fish or or what. Uh, This... We don't have a word for it in English, so shunyata, it has cognizing power. In other words, there's a knowing, it, there's an intelligence that's activated in that stillness. Now, when you rest in it, even for a little while, it has tremendous healing power. It also, you can feel it's highly charged with an incredible, incredibly subtle form of life. And it activates a kind of intelligence, you could call it wisdom. That is not, it's not illogical, but it's non-logical. And I'd like to leave us with this idea. 
this is I've, I teach this a fair amount in Cambridge because you know we're right in the middle of so many universities and professions and hospitals and so forth. Um, I've, I feel we've defined intelligence unintelligently by limiting it to rational, logical, uh, conceptual knowledge, the accumulation of information, putting together in very useful, creative ways. It's a beautiful human capacity. But we've come to think that that is intelligence and limited. We've cut ourselves off. So I'm not suggesting uh, re to reject that. If you have a mind that works, be grateful. You know, that knows that one plus one equals two and beyond, of course. Uh, because that's great. It, but if it's a runaway mind, it's, a, it's an addiction. You know, it's just, you, it's, it's a, a blanket. It's covering up your inner depths. And it gives you a certain kind of satisfaction, which as we get older, it becomes less and less fulfilling. Because it, it's, it's, it has no depth. The world may recognize it and pat you on the back and pay you lots of money. And that's good. But even that won't be enough. Um, I, if I'm wrong, then I am. You know, you don't have to accept anything I'm saying. Of course, the Buddha said that, right? Okay. But even if he didn't, you don't have, then you won't. Okay. So uh, this quality of intelligence is a kind of intuitive awareness. Somehow, it's responsive. Now, some of the, if you read some of the, uh, some of the texts, they make statements like it's. Uh, always correct. It's, the responsiveness is always correct. But if you read the original teachings of the Buddha, the Buddha never lets up in terms of watch the effects of your, the consequences of your actions. Because he says even a Buddha, let's say who's fully awake, will do certain things, but then it turns out that the particular people that receive it, it was not right for them. So it's not like you can say, well, now I've attained emptiness and whatever, I, it'll be responsiveness rather than mechanical reactivity from my conditioning from my past. It's fresh. It's this intelligence that, that uh, I heard them talk about at IMS and all that stuff. It, um, I think there is something to it. because, But when we put it in words, for example, I haven't practiced too much compassion or loving-kindness meditation. I did some. Um, but whatever small loving-kindness and compassion I've developed or I've, is, is with me, aside from what I was given you know, from my family, uh, comes out of this silence. I firmly be, and I didn't even, while you're in the silence, you don't know that that's going on. And then suddenly someone will say, you know, you're a little, little kinder than you used to be. I am? Oh. You're a little uh, softer. I am? Yes, you are. You're a little bit more, not so fast to come back and uh, disagree. Uh, so there's something very healing, something very worthwhile that goes on. And I would call it another form of intelligence. But it, it's not to exclude or discredit rational, logical, uh, which we've come to define as intelligence. And we also come to define learning as what goes on in schools and through books and other media. And what we're, what we're saying here is we're encouraging all of us that there's another kind of learning. And uh, it, the clearer the mind becomes, the more accurate it sees. And the more accurate it's able to see, the more you're less, you're less able to BS yourself.
because you just can't, it's, it's just, you have to hold your nose uh, because you see it too clearly. Okay, and so you can call it something else, you can call it wisdom, you can call it insight, but I, I like the word intelligence, and I'll tell you why. Wisdom uh, in our culture often is something we all approve of, but no one care, really does it. It's in every universe, know thyself, unto the, every university I've ever been to has some building that says know thyself, be a land, you know, something like that. It's in the Greek tradition and so forth. But there aren't long lines of people queuing up to do it. Have you seen them? I haven't. So it's good to read Socrates, Aristotle, and all that, and then quote it. Nice. Now let's get on to the real thing. Um, intelligence is something that we still respect. We like that word. That, that person's a very intelligent person. Over, yeah, really? Oh. Now, another one has been added, spiritual. If you say they're very intelligent and very spiritual, give me the, what's their phone number? Uh, so it is a form of intelligence. It, but wisdom is a perfectly beautiful term for it as well. And it's an, a kind of intuitive knowing, a direct knowing. And so here, for example, investigation might be, this silence isn't you sink into a narrow space and, and everything else is pushed away. Uh, that comes from one-pointed kind of concentration. But rather, you're aware, of, for example, you can have this and you're aware of, let's say, a certain, something comes up, fear comes up. And the mind is clearer than it's been. There's a stillness there. So investigation would be a sustained, silent attention to the fear. There's no thinking in it. But, I would, but it's called investigation because there's a keen interest. It's sort of, if you have to put in words, it would be, and it's a koan in Zen. What is this? It's a, a looking with interest. What is this? But it's not thinking about it. It's seeing it and then watch it and see what it, how it behaves and then uh, and, and, and from there on. So that's where this all goes. In the language of the Theravada, of Theravada Buddhism, we're inclining the mind to move from the conditioned to the unconditioned. The condition is where we're living out most of our life. It's essentially our, our past working its way out again and again and again. Our conditioning from our family, from our culture, from our school, you know, everything that's happened to us. It's, it's stored inside the brain somewhere. And then it modifies over time and situations. But the unconditioned, and it's always changing, it's impermanent and insubstantial and a necessary part of life. Okay, red light, green light, they're conventions. But we don't dispense with them because they have a re they're useful. But we know the difference. The sign, Boston, 47 miles, we know it's very helpful. It's a convention. It isn't Boston. It's just pointing to Boston. But it's helpful. At a certain point, you don't need it. So it's that way. Um, you have a, a kind of knowing that when it, uh, when it looks at some aspect of life, it's so much more clear than the old mind, which is trying to solve its problems, which it has helped create. The old mind is trying to solve problems that it made. And it goes round and round. This is different. Um, so the unconditioned is really the direction that Vipassana practice goes in. And, but we get there not by trying to get there, but by seeing the playing out of the conditioning 
we watch it all arise and pass away. And uh, Michael and I had a wonderful Indian teacher named Munindra, Manindraji, and he would often say, enjoy the show. Well, at first, if you're new, you're not enjoying the show much of the time. Okay, but you can get to the point where, oh, here comes Mother Teresa, me as Mother Teresa. Oh, here comes me as Adolf Hitler. And you just watch this mind churning out notions and fantasies and ideas and making up futures and retrieving the past, rewriting it so it's more useful for the present, and doing all these things. It's hilarious. It's funnier than Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Much funnier. And so, okay. Can we have a few moments of silence, please? I owe Michael 10 minutes. May we continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. And may such clear, direct seeing free us. Okay, thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.